0: Isaiah 43 is what I want us to look at today. Um, Really, I I will reduce the amount of scripture that um, we'll read. This is a long section of scripture beginning with the 40th chapter of. Isaiah, and it has to do basically with Isaiah is prophesying the Babylonian captivity, which will come to pass some centuries later, but he's speaking as if they were there then or undergoing the judgment of God, all of it because they had turned away from God and had stopped seeking Him. And he mentions in the earlier chapters that the cause of all this was their sins. He said, there, you have heaped up your sins against me and I have poured out my wrath upon you in sending you into captivity in Babylon. Now, it hadn't even happened yet. Um, but we know later that their continual sinning and worshiping of idols and so forth and turning away from God resulted in 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Babylon at that point was the greatest kingdom on earth. They were the, they were the superpower then. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was going to be coming to the throne and Babylon was the pinnacle of strong kingdoms. Of Nebuchadnezzar it says very simply his power was, was thus whom he would he killed whom he would he kept alive. So this literally was a king and a kingdom with power of life and death. And so Isaiah is warning Israel not to continue to disobey God but prophesying that they wouldn't listen and that as a result they would face this catastrophic prophecy that they would be, the country of Israel would be leveled, the city of Jerusalem would be leveled, the temple would be leveled, and they would be carried off to this captivity. But, as we look at one of several places in this passage, the first words of the 43rd chapter, but now... Again, this is prophesying quite a ways away, but it's saying, but now, in spite of all you've done, and in spite of all of the judgment that I, God's saying, has poured out on you and scattered you and ruined your country and sent you off to Babylon, I will still redeem you from that, I will call you back to myself. I will bless you. I will restore you. So the sweep of about five or six or seven chapters here is that theme. In the 43rd chapter, we have some very familiar scripture, a lot of promises in it. I want to read a section of it, and then we'll... And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush or Ethiopia, and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples, in exchange for your life. Fear not. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, Nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. And who can turn it back or reverse it? I have to quit there. There's more that I love this passage of Scripture where we're so frequently reminded I'm God. There, is none, there isn't any other God. There's no Savior. God says there is no other Savior. I don't know of one further on. This passage to me is, it's timeless obviously, but there are always times in our lives, in the lives of cultures, countries, and so forth, when these kinds of promises and encouragements are especially appropriate. I think that this whole passage and some that I didn't have time to read is well outlined, captured in the words of a a hymn. I want to use that hymn today as at least the outline of what I want to say. That hymn and I decided not to put it on the um, screen it's a little bit hard to get everything on on one uh, screen. There are five verses to this great hymn entitled How Firm a Foundation. The writer of this hymn How Firm a Foundation wrote it from Isaiah 43. So the hymn in encompasses this chapter, and hopefully um, we'll see how he does a wonderful job of capturing the heart of this passage of Scripture. I'll read the first verse of the hymn, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? couple things here that we see in this chapter and I think we see in our world today. First of all, there's a prerequisite. Who has the privilege, the right to appeal to God's grace, God's help? Who can trust in and has a right to claim the promises that are in this passage of Scripture? Those in the chapter that God says, are called by my name. In this hymn, he puts it slightly differently. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith, in his excellent word. So there are some prerequisites here as to who can lay claim to the wonderful promises, encouragement, grace, help, in this passage of scripture those who call are called by god's name those who are saints now i can't solve this problem <laughs> this morning but there there's been a massive wave for years of denigrating the word even saint we use it as a sarcastic term 90% of the time. Oh, you're such a saint. We have this attitude that if anyone claims to be or designates somebody else is they're a saint, that that's an impossibility, nobody's a saint, and that you are self-righteous and puffed up and proud and the opposite of Humility. Listen, in the way God uses the term saint we better be a saint. We better be saints. Everywhere in Scripture, in the New Testament especially we find the people of God always referred to as saints. The introduction to virtually every letter that's written, whether it's Peter, it's James, it's John, it's Paul, it's to the what? To the saints in Rome, in Ephesus, in Galatia, to the saints abroad, whatever. It was a routine, regular use of this term by God himself and the Greek in the New Testament the word everywhere the phrase is holy ones to the holy ones we translate it saints but some uh, English versions will translate it literally to the holy ones in Rome to the holy ones in Galatia in Colossae that's another word that's ruined <laughs> oh you're so holy Better be. I better be. To be a saint, to be a holy one, is to imitate Jesus, who John summed up. Paul said essentially the same thing about Jesus describing him. He loved righteousness, he hated iniquity. Love righteousness, hate iniquity. What did the Lord himself say as he was in this this mysterious conversation with the devil over Job? God said to, to the devil, Have you considered my servant Job? That he fears God and hates iniquity? There's the same description of Jesus. Fear God, hate sin. That's a saint. That's a holy one. Someone who walks with God. So there's a prerequisite here. To whom do these promises and this encouragement apply? To the saints, to the holy ones to those who believe and are believing and the foundation laid for our faith. <clears throat> and it's specifically to those, it says, in this hymn, who for refuge to Jesus have fled. There's a place that we're to go to when we need refuge. I don't know about you, but I think that we're, we all feel often, I need refuge. The society today, the world at large, every, every time you read the newspapers or you look, there's, there's trouble everywhere. Jeremiah, the prophet, he was accused... Uh, by the hearers, they were sick of him and they threw him in a dungeon and they promised to kill him and they never got it, didn't, they never pulled it off. But they criticized him. They said, All you do is preach, there's trouble everywhere. There's trouble. Well, there is. There is trouble everywhere, everywhere you turn. And it's made far, far, far worse today as our world has become much smaller due to communication i don't want to get off the subject here but there's no question in my mind that there's been a drive part of human depravity is to nullify god's word so whatever god says we'll do the opposite And you go clear back to the tower of babel they had one language they were all together And all their efforts and their evil designs were all coordinated together to build this tower up to heaven, an idolatrous deal. And God said, I'm going to go down there. He could see it from where he lives, But he said, I'm going to go down there, and I'm going to see what's going on. Well, he knew, but he says they're all together. They're all one language, and nothing will be denied that they plan to do. They will get so depraved and so accomplished at carrying out depraved plans that I've got to do something to hinder it. And so, all of us I don't know what ideas we would come up with, but I wouldn't have thought of the idea God did. He just said, rather than killing a whole bunch of them or doing, he said, I'll just confound their language. So they showed up for work the next morning and no one could understand each other. They had different words for a hammer, for whatever, a saw. They couldn't understand each other. And so it says he scattered them over the face of the earth by language groups. I think the human race has subconsciously been endeavoring ever since then to overcome that hindrance and we have managed to pull it off. We communicate now just like that with someone that is 50,000 miles away. And we've got automatic translation apps on our phones. So we we have done everything we could to push back on God's remedy to hinder depravity. So we're now, again, with the heightened communication we have, we're able to once again pool our depravity. And we can see, notice, whether it's our country or all around the world, where's the worst depravity? It's in large gatherings of people in packed into places. That's why I like being in Wyoming. <laughs> Having spent time and a lot of time in Portland, Oregon and Indianapolis, I like it out here. I like it that we are the um, least populated state and you, I think you can prove that where rural areas where there are less population, They they are not as depraved. Doesn't mean they're all Christians. But they're not as wicked as you find in the teeming population centers. Humans pool their depravity. Now, I kind of got off the subject, but in the middle of all that, I think part of the result of our speed of communication it heightens what we know. And as a Christian it's discouraging. The devil intends for that. But I look around as a believer and I read this morning, you ought to go read Psalm 73 and Psalm 74. They talk about, the psalmist asks, Lord, why don't you do something to the wicked? Why don't you stretch forth your hand? God himself says, I restrain myself. That's God talking. I have restrained myself. I have put up with all this. Like he said before the flood, I'll give them 120 more years of depravity in the hopes that some would repent. I'm not willing that any perish. And so God's tarrying and his restraint of himself, God's described as long-suffering. The word long-suffering literally means to restrain a passion, particularly anger. So God restrains His anger out of mercy. We interpret that if we're not careful and the enemy will tempt us to, that God is sluggish. He's He needs to unlimber some thunderbolts. Now personalities differ and so forth. Uh, but often I find myself thinking, Lord, you know, I, I like I like the stories of where, where lots of people just got it. <laughs> and he just kind of cleared the decks. And I think good. But that in the end doesn't redeem anything. And I'm always reminded of Paul saying, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. So it's good I'm not in control. Or you're not in control. I don't know which would be worse. But God God promises here even though we are inundated with reports, news of grievous things. And we, we fret over it. Part of what we have, we will never get to this point, but we're approaching the kind of omniscience that God has. And we'll never get there. But the point is, we now know Massively more than our ancestors ever knew. Have you ever read hundred year old newspapers? You got little snippets of news here and there, and it's the kind of heavy duty news like Mr. and Mrs. So and so took an automobile trip to see their son and his daughter, or their daughter in law in some little out-of-the-way village you never heard of. And they went all 50 miles or 60 miles, maybe. And so-and-so's going to be turning in, their, the quilt club is going to meet uh, next Thursday. at. That's the kind of stuff that we dealt with. Now we see instant videos of people being shoved off onto the subway tracks. We, it, it overwhelms us. The truth of the matter is we can't handle the kind of information God's got. But we're getting closer to it through the efforts to communicate and we communicate depravity. And so it's overwhelming. And then I, I need then To read something like Isaiah 43, Psalm 73, Psalm 74, the hundreds of passages. Don't fret, I'm God. There isn't any other God. I act, and who can undo it? Who can stop me from anything? I'm God. Did I tell you? I'm God. There's no God before me. There's not going to be any God after me. Not that God's going to go anywhere because He's forever. From everlasting to everlasting. I'm God. So don't fret. And then when He says, when that God says, as in this passage, I love you. I've called you by my name. I've put my label on you. Therefore, fear not. I'm with you. I'm God. Ever watched, sure we have, ever watched some football game or some whatever and, you know, the future Hall of Famer somebody is maybe injured and the sideline reporters are breathlessly talking about we don't know if they're going to be back for the rest of the game and then If they trot back out onto the field and they're taped up and they can, the place goes crazy. Because our hero is back and they are frail humans. They're nothing. God says, I'm on the field. I'm with you. I will hold your right hand saying, I will help you. What a, a comfort. We've got God. Now I have to fight the good fight of faith. Trust that he'll always keep his word. But he's God. He's going nowhere. He's going nowhere. He's the same God that formed Adam of the dust. He's the same God that spoke the heavens. He's the same God. He refers to it here. It's kind of figurative language. But he said, I gave Egypt for you. He reminds them, I toppled the number one power then, Egypt. They were the superpower then. And he pulled his own people out. Moses sent Moses in unarmed. Let my people go. That's all he said. You let my people go. Well, they, they left. And God drowned the entire army in the Red Sea. And he said, I did that for you because I loved you. And I was protecting you, taking care of you. So don't be afraid. Don't fret. At the storm clouds we see, don't fret. God's here. Fear not, I'm with thee, O be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. All-powerful. There is no power against God. There just isn't. Now, There's a purpose that we'll see. The place, flee to Jesus for refuge. Not to any human institution. Not to any human endeavor. Put not your trust in princes in whom there is no help. There's a purpose. When through the deep waters... I call thee to go. That means when I go through trials, tribulations, hardships, dark days. What did he say? I called you to go through this. I'm fully aware of it. And I have a purpose in this. I have a plan. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee. Thy troubles "...to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress." What does that last phrase mean? The very deepest, darkest days became a beacon of light that I reflect back on, that I remember, because God was there and he took me through it. That becomes in our lives when we submit to God's will, Lord, I don't know why this happened, I will trust you. Job poured out his heart to God. And Job really, we get to to see what was going on behind the scenes with Job. But Job didn't. Job believed. He thought God was doing this to him. Yet in a couple of places with a flash of insight, he said, I, 23, chapter 23 of Job, he said, I go forward looking for you. Lord, I can't find you. And he said, I go behind me. You aren't there. He said, I go to the left hand and I can't see you. Then he throws this and he says, I go to my right hand where you are working. So he Knew God was up to something. He didn't know, but he knew God hadn't completely abandoned him. Where I go to the right where you're working, but I still can't feel you. Then he says this. He says this. But you know the way that I take, and when I am tested, I'll come forth like gold. So bless Job's poor, suffering heart. He... Didn't know what was going on, but he trusted God enough to say, I know, I know you are involved. I can't see your hand, but I know you know, and you will not walk away from me. I'll sanctify to you. I will never let you forget the deep blessing and the way I carried you through. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only designed thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. That's the purpose. The purpose is, I want to cleanse you further. I want to bless you. I want to stiffen your resolve, I want to strengthen you, I want to encourage you, I want to take any dross away. I, you know what the word dross, there's the Hebrew word for dross in Proverbs, and I'm far away here for a second. The silversmith, it says, takes away the dross from the silver so that he can make a vessel out of the silver. The word dross? is to flinch or to turn back. So why is God letting us go through fiery trials? Thy pathway shall lie right through the middle of distress. He wants to to make sure that he takes out of our hearts and out of our habits and out of our thinking any tendency to flinch, to turn back, to fail. He has a plan. He has a purpose. The soul that on Jesus, here's the promise, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. He's never going to let the devil at us in his full power without some restraint. We see that even even when God, again it's a mystery, but when God told Satan, You can can tempt Job, but you don't touch his life. You can take his goods, whatever, but you don't do this. The devil, I heard a famous preacher once say at a conference I was at, and I've never forgotten it, the devil is on the loose, but he's on a leash. That's true. He still only gets the leash slack that God allows him. And God only lets him do it so that he can strengthen us, stiffen us, encourage us, teach us. This is his aim. This is his purpose. Then the promise is, once you flee to me in the middle of all this, I will not desert you to your foes. That soul, I love this final sentence, that soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. What a promise. I won't leave you. Ever. I will always be by your side. I'll help you, I'll strengthen you, I'll encourage you. I'll comfort you. I am all you need. Is there any Savior beside me? God says, I don't know any. I'm God. I don't know about you. Sometimes I wonder in the ministry, sometimes I wonder am I preaching to myself more than I am to anybody else? Um, Or what? I hope that efforts to make sure that I'm preaching to not just myself, but to you too, I hope that I'm listening well enough. But just reading this passage a number of times, it's comforting. It's just comforting. It's reinforcing, it's reminding, I'm God. Chill out. (laughs) One more psalm to go read, 46. Let go and let God be still and know I'm God. We're okay. We're safe. Let's bow our heads. And we'll just close with a word of prayer. I would encourage you to. um, You can get online or whatever, get a hymnal anywhere. Find the words to this old, old, wonderful hymn. How firm a foundation. Ye saints of the Lord. Read it. It's a help to your heart. Father in heaven, in a lot of ways, we look around us and these are dark days, and you've never sugarcoated anything. You are as transparent as can be, and you know that the hosts of sin are pressing hard to draw us from the skies. You know that we face a supernatural foe that is our enemy, against whom we have no strength except through you. Help us hide in you. Help us go to you for refuge and stay hidden in you. Grant us, I pray, the ability to keep our eyes fixed on you. Once we turn and start looking at the wind and the waves all around us will sink, help us just keep looking at you. You will never fail us, and we will triumph at the last. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.